Okay, um, I'm Stefan Kritzkowski. I'm urban designer at Northwest Leisure District Council. I also help another a number of authorities in the area. And I'm Amy Burbage, and I work for the North Northamptonshire Joint Planning and Delivery Unit, covering four local authorities in North Northampton. So our experiences cover more than just one authority, obviously, but we're also we both serve on design review panels, so we see a lot of what's happening on the ground. Um, our caseload, we, we sit in planning departments, so we see planning applications <laughs> through the planning application process. Um, so we almost see quite a lot of what's happening on the coalface. So we've been asked by Robert to join us today and, and talk about our experiences and discuss how consistent uh, schemes are with the ideas set within Manual for Streets. So we're going to share with you some of our experiences. Um, I think in terms of some wider context, uh, Amy and I were discussing this um, over lunch. Um, most local authorities, planning authorities, particularly in suburban greenfield locations, are in the two-tier authority structure. So we don't have the highways authority within, within the administration of the council itself. It's a, it's a higher tier authority. And that inevitably means we're almost powerless to influence what the highways authority want to do. Um, and, and that's a particular challenge we, we've both faced. We know highways authorities that sit in county council structures are under huge financial strain. Um, and in that, they have reverted to things that are standard, predictable, costable. They don't want to adopt a development management approach in many instances because they simply don't have the manpower to sit with us through the development management process. Well, and they don't get funded, they don't get paid until the Section 38 stage. So there's a cash flow issue in them, in them coming in early enough to influence and provide the advice at the stage you want it for pre-app because they're not going to get paid until Section 38. Okay, so we're going to start off. So we've, we, we've covered this. So um, our experiences aren't, aren't isolated. I think they provide a pretty strong insight into what's happening, particularly in lots of regional areas in, in England. Um, we, we've heard this a lot. We've had lots of people say, well, it's up to the local planning authority to put its foot down and say, this is what we want. Um, we've learned through bitter experience that that doesn't work because all that happens is, uh, Andy showed a slide where you've got you know, the Leon Korean one with the buildings and then you shape the street through that. We've done that a million and one times. And then what happens is the highways authority come along and say, if you want that adopted, we're going to have to start pulling things apart it, and start stretching the streets. It's something I call the mystery of the disappearing trees because you go out on site with your plan and they've all gone because no one's really thought about where the utilities runs were going to be or the display means that all the trees that were shown have disappeared. And you go out there and you've crestfallen. Yeah. So developers will want an implemental planning permission and part of that is they're mindful of what they can get adoptions consent for. So planning permission doesn't necessarily mean they're going to get adoptions consent. Uh, I'm, I'm an external examiner at Anglia Ruskin University and I was quite struck by a piece of coursework I, I examined uh, earlier on this year. And I think, you know, if, if millennials get it, why don't we? So uh, I think there's this idea that, you know, we're thinking, highways authorities are thinking about the car as a primary user of a street, but millennials aren't. The users of those streets in coming years are not thinking about streets the way we as regulators are thinking about them. Uh, the, only, the only thing to bear in mind, though, is that millennials are by and large moving to cities, and we're dealing, particularly Stefan and I, are dealing with small towns and villages. 
where millennials are not living <coughs> because of jobs and, and, and housing costs as well. Um, this is quite a, uh, this is, looks like something that's pre-manual for streets, but it isn't. It's post-manual for streets, and uh, it's that kind of classic, uh, what more, you know, that street is purely about moving vehicles and getting your bin lorry down it. Uh, so the, que <laughs> the question is, is are, are things improving? So 2017, one of the largest developments in the East Midlands, looks like this. It's all started with this. Everything's hanging off this main route that is fulfilling an unofficial bypass function for, for that city where that's, that's located. Um, it's based upon car movement, how many cars can we accommodate on that street, how we can we get a continuous flow. Um, we're not thinking about 20 mile per hour speed limits, we're thinking about 30 and how can we use that to boost capacity and we think about on pavement cycling. So that's where this development of up to 6,000 homes has, has started from. That road is there and the buildings are now all being built around that framework. So exactly the opposite of what Andy was talking about in his presentation. Um, and <laughs> Andy's, Andy's given us something that, which was called a designer's dozen and one of the things was don't build roundabouts. This is a classic of a roundabout on a, on a residential uh, scheme for about 50 houses in total. Um, and if you are walking or cycling, you have to go massively off your design lines. Uh, it, it, yeah, it does slow speeds, but it is crazy. So we can resist this as a local planning authority. We can say this is not the type of thing we want to see, but inevitably and increasingly, the response we get back from the highways authority is well, we won't adopt it. Do you want to adopt it as a district council? Well, we're not highways authorities. We don't have the manpower. We don't have the expertise. We don't even have the kit that will take you up to a lighting column to replace the bulb. So we don't, we're not geared up to fulfill those functions. Uh, it's, it's not uncommon to see this. So here we are where you, you've got a scheme that is looking to reflect the organic characteristics of a place. And you might have your own views of how well the buildings do that. But it is a particular challenge if we're trying to reflect the distinctive characteristics of maybe a, a, a village in Northamptonshire or Leicestershire, we can't necessarily make that look convincing because the highway standards are so rigid and, and standardised, all the things that are not what we should be doing. This is the wiggly waggly streets. <laughs> um, this, you know, suddenly you, don't you feel transported to a contextual and uh, uh, historic <laughs> feeling? I mean, it's just so common, and it's just so much more expensive as well for the developer to do. Uh, we are getting uh, increasingly developers that are saying, well, I can do this in Cambridgeshire. Why is it different in Exshire than I, this? You know, they, they, they're starting to question, why are you setting these standards, and why are they so different? And I think that's part of this problem of, of manual streets being uh, guidance, not policy, because it means that it is really confusing for the developers out there who just basically want to build their houses and move on, and they want their streets adopted so they can sort it out and, pa and, and pass it on to the, to the homeowners who are not having to then work, worry about streets that are not adopted. I don't believe the barrier is with developers. No. Developers want consistency, certainty, and a lot of the more enlightened developers are not only recognising, you know, that there's potential value in better design and place, but the more switched on ones are recognising that manual for streets can reduce huge development costs. So they're recognising that, but they're saying, I, can, I can't do that because I'll just get to adoption stage and it'll all get ripped apart. We'll have to start up-specking everything. Um, 
This is the, the classic one that was already been talked about, but um, tracking. Man of Streets talks about tracking, but it's about what you're tracking for. Um, and if you're always tracking that you're, you're, uh, you have to have every single situation where a, a bin lorry can always get past with something parked on the other side of the street in the most complicated place possible, then you end up with, with designs that are just o over-engineered that people can then speed on because these streets are, are overwhelm overwhelmingly large. Um, this all leads to a, a really nice cul-de-sac at the end as well, this, this particular one. Uh, forward visibility is, is something that is preferred in these locations, um, but actually in practice we see that a lot of forward vis is seen by residents as a bonus parking space. <laughs> but these streets still function effectively and safely, we've got no recorded accidents even though that car is parked there, actually blocking that forward visibility. So it's functioning perfectly fine. The other frustration I've got there is I, you know, somebody has decided that those bollards need to be playset to avoid cars getting in, but they've clearly got their calculations <laughs> somewhat wrong. Um, we do have some instances where we have managed uh, to, to, to get schemes like this, reduced force visibility, but they are still strongly resisted despite <coughs> no evidence of failure. So we are getting sort of slight successes here and there. And, you know, we've talked about this a lot and we think, great, we've got this, we can use that as a model for further development, but they're still resisted on, on subsequent schemes. And, and even if you go out, you know, I think that a lot of the messages already that we've heard of it is about training, but getting people out on site to places like Trumpington Meadows and Poundbury is, is brilliant, but there's still a lot of, oh, well, we couldn't do that because, you know, what if the bin lorry was coming the other way and someone was walking down the road with their double buggy? You know, it, it's a huge super tanker. We're trying to turn around, and I think ten years is proving that it's, it's not been enough time really to turn that super tank around. Um, this is, you know, your corner radii that you can take that corner as fast as you like, um, and that that kind of. I think we all thought really that some of the requirements around DDA would would change things like this, so that people were actually considering children and uh, vulnerable groups more. Um, but clearly it's not working with these sorts of situations because it's still being designed around uh, bin lorry uh, requirements largely. Um, and, and that's becoming even more uh, of an issue as local authorities. Now, again, this is one where there's a mismatch between county and district because it's the districts that commission the bin lorry, so they want the biggest ones they can possibly get because it's saving them money. And the county councils are being required to provide the streets that fit the bin lorries. So there's, again, that mismatch the whole time between that two-tier situation. We know that that's not a particularly good junction to navigate. We know that that can have a negative impact on people's travel choices. So if that's a difficult junction to traverse, you might not necessarily go and catch a bus to work, for instance. Assuming there is a bus there, we don't have many buses from where we come from. Um, but you often see Section 106 agreements where, you know, £9,935 is afford, been afforded to travel packs, which is effectively somebody issuing to every household bus timetables, free bus passes, things like this. You know, might that money be better spent on better street design, perhaps? We have a lot of this. Yeah, um, lots of... Turning. The thing is, if you provide you all these turning heads because you haven't got connected streets, then people park in the turning heads. So then the bin lorry can't turn around. So then highways say, well, actually, then you need an access off the turning head to stop people parking in the turning head. So then you end up with an even bigger turning head because you've got 
your tandem parking, quadruple tandem parking here, uh, to, to provide the parking you need. Uh, we're both dealing with areas that have very low levels, really, of public transport. They are, <laughs> you know, get a bus twice a day, some of the areas. So we need to be realistic. Car-free zones, when there's no alternative, are not going to work. People by and large, want walking and cycling opportunities, but they do also want their cars still because there is no other means for them to get around. Oh, that's another choice one. This is very common. We can get connected cul-de-sacs, as we call them. So, so we, we, we uh, work quite a lot to effectively connect what would have been two cul-de-sacs here. Um, but that's normally quite an expensive proposition for a developer because... The local highway standards, and we know manual streets doesn't promote standards, but you know, a contextually led approach. If you pick up many of these highways authorities' uh, effectively pattern books for their street designs, they do not have a specification for a single sided street. So, in most instances, the only way a developer could get that street in place, and this is an exception, the only way they could normally get that is by building a two sided street. So, if you think about a developer's viability model, they're having to you know, uh, resolve that cost of that with only development on one side of the street. So it's not particularly palatable to developers to do that. The other thing is we will get kicked back from highways authorities who actually do prefer the cul-de-sac arrangement because it reduces their linear extent of adoptable highway. And what we're finding, particularly since the global credit crisis and the reductions in public spending, is they are increasingly looking to reduce future liability. So what they're trying to do is actually shrink the amount of adoptable highway they're taking on. They like private driveways, they like um, cul-de-sacs, they like things that reduce <coughs> their future liabilities. And I think they're almost sleepwalking into this, you know, realize, not realising how much of the public realm is not going to be public because of that not wanting to adopt. So the, the kind of whole idea of connected networks that Manifest Streets espouses is being undermined by that. Um, Shared services is a real, real big issue. And essentially, I think there are places where it really, really works, but there are an awful lot of places, more places where it really, really doesn't. And it's just an opportunity, really, to take away a footway and squeeze in more houses. Um, children are not going to play out in these streets where you've got cars that are going much faster than, than walking pace, effectively. Bins are left out all week because... You've got really horrible, complicated rear alley access to your bins. Sometimes, despite uh, British standards, they're still going to be up and down steps. So you're expecting people to drag their bins up and down steps. <laughs> yeah, shared surfaces are a real problem. We struggle to get crossroads. So one of the basic building blocks of, of cities, towns, settlements, we, we can't have. So that's, that's a real big missing thing in our kit of parts. We can have them sometimes in sometimes. secondary streets or on cul-de-sacs, I'm told. Um, but you, you can't have them on a primary street. Really hard to have it on a busy street. Um, we, we have lots of issues with displaced parking. Um, there, there was a tendency, particularly around you know, PPG, PPS3 era, where there was the idea that if we reduce parking, people would move onto public transport, but that requires the public transport to be there. If the public transport isn't there, you, you won't get any modal shift. Um, there has also been a tendency to think about, well, cars in the street are bad, so what we need to do is push everything into rear courtyards. Um, it can be done well, it can be done badly. In most instances, it's 
it's been done really badly. And the slide I was expecting to be there well, isn't get, there. But we'll come back to courtyards. Go, well, this is yours. Yeah, it, just, just uh, trying to imagine how you would get along that road with a buggy. Um, and actually, that's one of the things that we have, I try and do when I'm talking to councillors is parachute them into that plan and say, imagine you were walking from your front door to here. How would you do it? Because I think that's one of the things that is making people realise that they're real places that they're building, not just a plan. There, there is a big cultural issue. I, I, I'm amazed at how much parking on pavements has increased mm. to the point that actually you see all four wheels on the pavement now. It's almost become socially acceptable mm. people aren't complaining about it you know uh, uh, you know elected members will go door knocking people complain about bins they will talk about um, parking courtyards they'll talk about not enough parking but they won't talk about parking on pavements it seems to have become socially acceptable which is which is quite an unusual phenomenon so these these are the courtyards I'm talking about so this is the I call it the Poundbury courtyards on the cheap model and there's no lighting, there's no surveillance. It's no surprise, particularly with the design of the individual houses, which aren't designed to be accessed very easily from the rear, that people then choose to park on the street because it's much <coughs> more convenient. So you do get these large parking courtyards. And, and as a result of these, you have a huge kickback from local planning authorities in northwest Leicestershire. We generally won't accept them now unless they meet a number of uh, uh, design requirements. And to be fair, most developers don't want to build them either because they've worked out that they're expensive wastes of space, essentially. Um, this is our general rule. Trees improve everything. Partly that because they do so many different benefits and, and uh, Robert's going to be talking about trees later on, but it was also that we're working by and large with the major house builders and trying to get them to change their individual house types is impossible often because they have got a very slick model that they know what they want to do but they are much more flexible about what you can do in the street and trees in a street of normal houses make everything better so that's our that's my general rule if we can get trees in but getting street trees into a street is the most difficult thing I think that I do so here's, here's a development in Ashby de la Zouche. These are Barrett and David Wilson Homes standard house types. Um, the feedback we've had from this scheme is extremely positive because people talk about the trees in the street. They don't talk about the architecture. They talk about the main avenue that threads through this development. Unfortunately, the Highways Authority don't like this model anymore because there's a lot of additional liabilities here. So the Verge they would need to mow, the trees they would need to look after, the block paving, they would prefer that to be tarmac, they would prefer standard BS curbs. Now developers will pay commuter sums to the highways authorities to cover those features, but it struck me the other day that all the things that add social, cultural, community benefit like trees for nature, air quality, all these sort of things, cycleways, they all attract commuter sums. The things that you know, take away from us as a community in terms of public health, obesity, air quality. The carriageway does not attract a commuted sum. All the things that add value attract a commuted sum. So in terms of our sort of our cultural organisational models at the, you say the public sector level, if we don't divide us into two tier authorities and say collectively, we're actually discouraging all the things that make great streets. Uh, one of the things, obviously the, the impact on the sort of 
the squeeze on house sizes, it means that what people thought was going to be where the parking was is actually where the storage in the home ends up being. So this is a, an integral garage with somebody's got all of their garden shed in it. I think that speaks for itself, but, you know, th 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 there is this... A lot of this inherent fear that what happens if two cars meet at the same time? What happens if down that side street an Ocado lorry is coming out at the same time a Waitrose one is coming out? What happens if the street is not wide enough? Um, we both advocate to colleagues in highways authorities that perhaps people might, as Andy said, wave flashlights, um, you know, share the space a bit more. But there is this idea that, you know, the two lanes one going one way, one going the other, should be unobstructed and operate freely at any point in time. And that's been the case, uh, this particular authority in Oxfordshire. <laughs> I, I happened to see this the other day and I had to go back and take a photo. But um, this, is, this is typical cycle infrastructure. And this is why we're not getting a modal shift. Um, we're not going to get a modal shift. We, we know that cycling on pavements is, is, is not actually culturally acceptable, um, but actually as public sector organisations, we're, we're encouraging it. But then we're sending out mixed messages. So I think as well, you know, we, we've got to have a standard model as to, you know, how do we accommodate cyclists within the street environment? I think something about modelling as well, about, you know, what your transport modelling is modelling for, because we're almost building in this sort of induced demand by f constantly trying to get more and more capacity through modelling capacity rather than modelling for walking and cycling and we want to induce that demand you know there's, there's, there's something inherently wrong about the way we're doing that um, this is a, a, a great one Stefan and I had a little drive about and this is a busily organised, beautiful uh, pedestrian route to the primary school, except when you get there, there's a ransom strip, so you can't get across the little brook to connect you to the other side. And the other, what's even worse is the other side was really hard fought for because that's a concept of houses which they didn't really want this new development to connect to. Um, but it's been set up in the planning stage, but then it's all about that organising your legal agreements to make sure that you actually deliver what you're showing on the plan. So we've got a path to nowhere on that scheme. So something that would have been a five minute walk between these people's homes and the primary school is now a 20 minute walk, part of which is alongside a really busy road. That'll have a massive impact on people's travel choices. This is a scheme in Castle Donington, um, which is a very narrow site, 13 homes. Um, it functions perfectly well. Um, vehicles take turns to get down, so it's not wide enough for two cars to pass. We've got front doors leading directly out onto the street, uh, where it's perfectly fine, but it's not to adoptable standards. So even though that is operating perfectly fine, there have been no issues, no instances, it's not adoptable. Um, and I think that that's a, that's a particular challenge for us when we've got evidence to show that things not built to adoptable standards, things that are contextually sensitive and responsive, we can't get adopted. And, and in a lot of local authorities, you wouldn't be able to have 13 houses on an unadopted street. It would be five or six, um, often because of bin lorry, uh, how far you can drag your bins. Um, we're still seeing in lots of uh, the schemes we work with that two by two metre forward visibility for pedestrians 
So that's something that's not in Manifest Streets. Manifest Streets basically says don't do this, but it's still in the standard guidance and it's still being pushed for. Um, parking, we've both said, is a big issue, but the kind of stanzas on that. Um, with a, in my sort of private life, I've been work, uh, trying to get a 20 mile an hour limit in my own village, and so I've come, encountered the 20s Plenty campaign. And it's striking when you see that, that it's actually this sort of... The cities get it, and 20 mile an hour limits are really in most of the major cities now. In terms of population, most of the population is covered by 20 mile an hour limit but the counties don't get it. And that's where all the battles are being fought is out in the counties about 20 mile an hour limit. <coughs> Why you might want a 20 mile an hour limit in a village um, is a really big issue for those people that the parishes want it and they're still having problems getting it. I'll just clarify that. No national centre on parking spaces. It's not about parking provision. It's about the size of a parking yeah. space. You know, we're dealing with national house builders and they're saying we can't make sense of the fact that a garage in one part of the country is smaller in one place, bigger in one place. Uh, the space you need to open a car door is half a metre wider in Amy's patch, half a metre less in my patch. It doesn't make sense. So I think when we're dealing with volume house builders, I think there are some things that actually will be beneficial to standardise on. And, and actually that goes to things like, can you count a garage as a car parking space? Some places you can if it's big enough, some places you can't if it's integral because everyone knows that they're going to put fridges in it and all the other stuff that they don't have room to store in the house because the house isn't big enough. So that there's, it's very, very difficult for a developer to understand why it's different in one authority that's right next door to the next authority. Uh, we've touched on most of this, but the, the, the fundamental issue is the fact that Manual for Streets is advisory in status. Um, so it's effectively optional for, for, for many highways authorities. You've then got in the two-tier system um, authorities with different priorities. We will think about people as you know pedestrians at the head of the user hierarchy. Many instances, our highways authorities colleagues will be adopting a different approach. So if you can't agree on the user hierarchy, that's that's a fundamental issue. Um, is it a bit of a professional power struggle as well? I mean, I, I've sat in many meetings where engineers have said to me, that is our bit to deal with, it's not yours. You deal with what goes on the face of the buildings. Um, but we are seeing things like this where, you know, you, you couldn't even park a, a car in that, that space. Not even a microcar. So our recommendations to conclude. Um, we think street design has got to be recognised as a key contributor to public health, so we think it needs to be repositioned um, as a public health issue. Um, I think it's still seen this idea when it attaches to urban design that it becomes an aesthetic issue about what things look like rather than as places function. Yeah, there's I mean, loads of fantastic work happening in London to do with the healthy streets agenda and we're very much trying to adopt that approach because I think in a way it starts to take it out of being about what the corner radii is which is all this <coughs> massive argument you constantly have about that and actually about what the function of the street is and how do people get across it and then the corner radii is one of the tools you use to in order to achieve that objective but at least if you can get people to sign up to the objectives in the first place but those objectives probably need to be something more meaty than just an idea it needs to be this is what we are trying to achieve and what you know how you're doing it through some sort of public health plan that local authority highway teams need to sign up to highways authorities think about highways they don't think about streets 
I think if there was a, an approach whereby all highways authorities were renamed as streets authorities, I think that would have a significant effect in starting to change cultural norms, because that's what we're, we're challenging. Um, we've got to think about modal shift nudges as well. We've shown that in some of our images. Um, just things that people can, can use to try and look at uh, how do we actually model for what we want. Um, there's the propensity to cycle tool, which put the link there, which talks about what if you go into a, I love it, the go Dutch scenario of, of you know, taking your census data and what does that mean for the amount of cycling you could expect uh, in a sort of realistic scenario. And actually then you can start to say, well, if there's going to be 7% modal shift, what does that mean? How do we make that happen? Because that must have an impact on that local capacity of the network. In a way, developers are being asked to do both things and being have to charge for both things. They have to pay for loads of highway uh, extra uh, infrastructure for the for the car, and then we're trying to get them to pay for loads of extra infrastructure for bikes and walking as well, and they're not getting any benefit out of that. We've got to tackle the three-mile journeys or less, and actually it's, it's the less bit. Uh, I live across the road from a park. I was stunned the other day as I was walking my dog from my home down the street, across the road to the park. My neighbour opposite drove their dog to the park. <laughs> and, I, and I think it's become, you know, it's just become a matter of habit to drive literally round the corner. We've got to tackle that. There's this idea that suburbia, it's everybody driving up and down the M1 every day. It, it's not necessarily. A lot of these people are still fulfilling and doing their daily lives within a, you know, a one-mile radius, but they're doing that by car. They drive to the gym in order to exercise on the walking machine. What this is about is really is that there are lots of really good guidance out there. And actually it's about making that guidance mandatory for the, you know, taking the best and making it applicable elsewhere. So Welsh Active Travel guidance is really good. Highways England guidance on cycling standards are really, really good. But trying to get, you know, that's, that's designing for the, for the trunk roads and, and we want that to be able to be used on the normal manual for streets 2 type of streets uh, because it's not at the moment. We've also got to change the mindset. You know, we, we can find a million and one reasons why we can't put a tree in the street but I think we need to say, well, what's, what, you know, why can't we? We should do this. We've got to find solutions. Um, and we believe great streets are needed outside London. I mean, we, we come down here, and the first thing we said as we left the chief was we were looking at curbs and uh, things like <laughs> this, and, and the way the street was functioning. Um, you know, and, and TfL, they've got their own streets department. They don't call themselves a highways department. So I think that, that change in terminologies is really important. Um, this is, really, this is uh, Centre Parks. And we just said, this is where people want to go on their holidays. They want to be able to walk and cycle. That, that's what they actually want. And if you ask people if they want safe cycling, they say yes. So it's what people actually want. They want, 20, you know, 20 mile an hour limit on the street that they live in. Um, we need to actually make sure that we're designing what people want in order to have the healthy lives that they want. If there's concern about the fact that people won't understand how a... I'm going to say a new manual for streets, street will work. Well, why don't we produce public information films? We used to do that. We used to show people how to navigate a roundabout and, and what you needed to indicate and when you needed to indicate. So why don't we invest in that if that is one of the concerns? Um, and finally, we, you know, we, we think that the, the urban design group should maybe consider using health and well-being as a way to promote its objectives. 
we do think from our perspective, and we've talked about this a lot, that we've had a lot of comments where people say urban is about, you know, urban design is about the way things look. Or it doesn't apply you know, to rural places. They're saying it is aesthetic. Mm. You know, mm. we've had elected members say to us, why have we got an urban designer? We're a rural authority. So I think there's a lot of baggage that sometimes can hold us back from achieving the things we really want to achieve as a group. Um, and we were just saying the, the, the Place Alliances has a uh, health and well-being arm, and I think that's a really useful tool for campaigning because it t goes across all the other kind of built environment bodies. Um, the Minister for Streets, the kind of the Scottish system of having a Minister for Streetworks, just makes loads of sense. You know, why don't we do it? And Boris would most probably be a good one with his cycling. So. <laughs> so that really concludes our thoughts. It's, it's perhaps been a bit of a warts and all presentation, and, and hopefully you found it insightful. Thank you.